Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tybel, and I work with Peace Catalyst here in the Washington, D.C. area. And as always, I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Allie Bernison. Hey everyone, I'm Allie and I'm joining you from Los Angeles, California. And so we want to remind you guys, if you enjoy the Peace Catalyst podcast, please do us a favor and take some time to rate and review the podcast on Apple. It really helps boost our visibility and just encourages others to give us a listen. So this week's peace quote comes to us from Menno Simons, an early Anabaptist leader. And he says, We who were formerly no people at all and who knew of no peace are now called to be a church of peace. True Christians do not know vengeance. They are the children of peace. Their hearts overflow with peace. Their mouths speak peace and they walk in the ways of peace. Such a powerful statement of who we we are, who we're called to be. And I think you'll find coincides nicely with what Katerina has to share with us today. Katarina Heya is an organizer with the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery Coalition and coordinates the Repair Network. She's also the pastor of Wild Church in Fresno, California, where she currently lives in the traditional homelands of various Yokuts and Mono nations, on whose lands her Russian Mennonite ancestors settled. Her work and ministry are inspired by Jesus's life of love, his ministry among the oppressed and forsaken, and by ancient prophetic visions of shalom, aka peace, harmony, justice, and right relations for all creation. Katerina loves creating sacred spaces for reconciliation and restoration with the divine, earth, and one another. She has planted gardens alongside incarcerated people in state prisons through the Insight Garden Program, accompanied people in their release and transition back to the community, and has also worked with churches to grow vibrant community gardens in abandoned lots. Katerina received recently a fellowship from Creation Justice Ministries to help move the Christian church toward truth and healing in relation with indigenous peoples in light of harms done under colonialism in California. Katerina graduated with her MDiv in Theology and Peace Studies from Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary. She loves writing poetry, hiking and camping in the Sierra Nevada mountains, tending her worm compost, and learning the names of local flora and fauna. We can't wait to have this conversation with Katerina and hope that you all will also get a lot out of it. Thank you so much for joining us, Katerina. Um, We're really excited to have you on the podcast and really looking forward to learning from you and your work. Um, Would you mind sharing a bit about yourself and your journey of getting to where you are today as the co-founder and organizer at the Coalition to Dismantle the Doctrine of Discovery? And perhaps if you could, within that, share what is the doctrine of discovery and how did you first learn about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And you'll have to remind me if I miss some parts of that question to return to. That's there's so much of that story that's there. Um, So my name is Katerina Heya, and I'm an organizer with the Coalition to Dismantle the Doctrine of Discovery and was one of the women who were part of the founding group um, that brought it about two other pastors in the Mennonite church, along with Sarah Augustine, who's an indigenous uh, Mennonite leader, who's now our executive director. And um, at the time I had just barely heard about the doctrine of discovery. It was in 2014 when we, when we launched and first started um, as a coalition. And I was a seminary student at the time. And I think it was in one of my seminary classes at Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary, where I first heard that phrase, the doctrine of discovery. Um, I think that, you know, growing up for me, I'm, I am um, a white person of, of German speaking, Russian Mennonite settler descent, uh, meaning my great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents were um, immigrants to this land and refugees. They settled in Central California, where I live now in Fresno, on Yokut's homelands. 
Um, and, um, and they uh, were largely people who, I think because of their own um, trauma of being refugees, as well as, you know, their own displacement and just need to survive, did not pass down a lot of information or knowledge or really understanding of the indigenous peoples in the area where they settled on. So um, I grew up, you know, probably like a lot of um, white Christians in this country, um, not knowing a lot about indigenous people, probably hearing myths that they died off or, you know, just sort of left somewhere (laughs) ambiguously. Um, and, uh, and, and it wasn't until later in life, um, and encountering indigenous peoples, um, living with them in the Philippines, and then relearning some of that history here in the U S that I came to understand the doctrine of discovery, um, which is kind of a catchphrase that refers to the, the legal and philosophical framework that grew out of the Christian church in the 15th and 16th centuries to justify Europeans claiming lands that weren't theirs, (laughs) justify colonization in the so-called new world. You know, Um, it formed the basis of international law governing land title today and basically allowed European Christian explorers to claim huge territories that indigenous peoples depended on for their lives, for survival Um, And it continues today. And I think that's a really important element that some people miss, that it's not just past history, but it formed this kind of bedrock and this just um, assumption about land that that continues in U.S. Supreme Court rulings, for example, as recently as 2005 or court cases where indigenous peoples are denied um, claims to their own homelands or sacred sites. Um, it allows extractive industries to come in, um, invited by the government, and to you know mine or log or take out resources from lands um, that indigenous peoples still depend on around the world for their livelihoods. And so, um, yeah, it's a concept that many of us may be unfamiliar with, but for for indigenous peoples who I've um, gotten to know over time. It's, it's really part of the fabric of daily life um, and very much part of reality today. So that was maybe part one of the question of what is the doctrine of discovery, how I came to find out about it. Um, I think you asked maybe a little bit about my story or a bit about my journey um, up to yeah. then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. How did you get into this? And I mean, you shared a little bit, but yeah, what was that journey mm-hmm. for you? What did mm-hmm. that look like? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, um, well, like I shared, I live in Fresno. Um, I a little bit about me. I'm a, a gardener. I consider myself to be a weaver of community, of creating strong networks. Um, I'm a Jesus follower, a pastor, an educator. Um, the church community that I pastor here locally um, part time is called Wild Church, and we meet outdoors near the river and gather. Um, at least twice a month for either hikes or canoe trips or immersion experiences that bring us into connection with creation and allow us to get a sense of creator's love that's so much bigger than we had ever imagined, not just for humans, but for the whole earth. Um, And we also um, do contemplative prayerful gatherings uh, together outdoors um, we see our mission to um, to really move towards reconciliation, not only with uh, one another, but also towards the land and with our relationship with God as part of that journey. Um, I think the themes of um, that I've been sharing about with Wild Church and you know reconnecting with the land and place um, came about because I came from a family that was really uh, mobile. We moved like 12 times growing up. I came from a missionary family. Um, My parents and grandparents were missionaries in other lands. So I grew up with a strong interest in other cultures and languages. I grew up mostly evangelical, although kind of aware of of Mennonite roots of my family and that that was something my parents and grandparents had come from, but sort of distanced from over time. Um, So I went to Wheaton College and actually at Wheaton was drawn back to my Mennonite roots because 
in that area, the Mennonite church at the time was the only church that I encountered that was really speaking up about the war in Iraq that was happening in the early 2000s. Um, and uh, I got involved in the peace movement there and war protests and um, nonviolent you know, actions and really came to re-embrace this peace theology, um, the understanding that following Jesus meant seeking nonviolence and resistance to war making. Um, so that's a little bit of my story um, through college. And then I think beyond college, I realized that um, that to be faithful to our calling as the church, that it needed to be broader than just war, but really challenging violence and seeking peace uh, meant confronting other broader systems, interrelated systems that create death, like racism and um, like colonization and the ongoing um, harms and abuses against the earth. And it just became so much bigger, I think, than, than I initially sort of started out with. But probably like many of us, we follow one thread and then it just sort of expands and you realize the ways that, um, that so much is interconnected and, and that um, following Jesus is so much more expansive than I had imagined you know, growing up or entering into college. Wow. Super, super interesting. And I think something that stood out when you were sharing is that as you were, um, you know, beginning to unravel or uncover areas of injustice and these, um, harmful doctrines that many times, sadly have been interwoven with the church tradition and, um, you know, have kind of been stamped with, with the label of being, um, Christ-like or Christian, or, um, I think it's interesting or just something that I'm noticing is that, you know, it, it might've been frustrating and upsetting, but that, um, it, it didn't push you away, but it, it actually led you to, um, maybe like press in, but just in a different way. Mm. Um, because I think, yeah, I, I don't know. I think something that I've noticed is that as people encounter some of this like harmful ideology that is associated with the church, um, like, you know, hmm. global church throughout history, um, that it that it can lead them to to pull away and question, which is totally fair for a time. And um anyway, I that was just something that was coming to mind as you were sharing. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I appreciate you you noticing or naming that. Um, and it's in, it's interesting with Wild Church, we especially embrace and um, welcome people who are on that journey of deconstruction, but for whom deconstruction doesn't feel like the end of the road, and they just don't know what's next yet. You know, it's like we many of the people in our church community are, you know, LGBTQ or who have grown up in fundamentalist communities or have experienced a lot of um, pain and harm, exclusion, or, um, or really just felt the, um, that sharp barrier of who's in and who's out being defined by humans <laughs> rather than, you know, feeling the, the all embrace of, of creator's love who wants us to enter into right relationship. Um, and I think it's so important, just like you just said, to acknowledge, of course, we want to distance from that. Like, of course, we want to say like, no, because it's so grievous. We lament and are like, how in the world did the church, which is meant to follow this like humble, homeless, Palestinian Jewish refugee rabbi, end up as like the seat of power and empire and domination. Like that is just such a disconnect uh, between what we um, long for of a church of the, of the oppressed or lowly and dispossessed that is hospitable and that transforms, you know, culture and society rather than seeking to control and, um, and suck out the life <laughs> from, from people in the land. Um, so so yes to that that uh, rejection stance, and who's going to claim responsibility? Who's going to do something about it? Who's going to address the harms in a restorative way? If not the people who have inherited those harms, and I say inherited broadly, like it, I I think anyone who 
who can claim or say, this is part of my lineage. Maybe they grew up in the Christian church or maybe their you know, parents or grandparents benefited. It could be white European folks who I feel like have extra inheritance sort of power to, to do something about it. But also I think framing that broadly, like we can claim our, our inheritance and say, we, we today have this invitation, I believe from the spirit to, um, to seek repair and restoration from these um, awful, you know, crimes. Uh, and, and um, if not we, who, who will step up and say yes to, to creating something new out of that shell of the old, which is what I feel like is at the heart of Christianity is that resurrection life out of a crucifixion. And the church, unfortunately, has sponsored a lot of crucifixions. And that's what we're seeking to address with the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery Coalition is this is a huge wound that's still open and grieving. And if the church doesn't stand up and do something and and gather together, along with other people of of spirit and conscience, who will um, who will respond? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for um, thank you for all of that. And so with that in mind, it kind of leads well into the next question that um, that we wanted to ask you, which is, could you sketch for us a vision in you know your own articulation or experience, however you would say it, of what shalom is, what it means, what does it look like, and um, you know maybe if you can, if you can, if you have seen any areas of culture, society, community where you see traces of that vision, maybe if you could, um, yeah, present those as kind of examples of like this is that's what shalom looks like. Mm. Oh, that's such a great question, and I think we need to just share these stories widely and often with one another. <laughs> um, yeah. Last night on the news, I saw something about like, n- you know, nuclear war being imminent or something like the tipping point is very soon. It was like the headlines. I was like, Oh my goodness, that is so true. And, and we also need to share and cast these stories of, um, of, of the peaceable, you know, kingdom of God breaking in to this reality of, of shalom happening now. Um, I, I find shalom in, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, someone who's been involved in a lot of community garden work and food justice movements. And I would say that was one of my um, early tastes of shalom was through gardening with other people and through gathering together at a Methodist church in Oxnard, the Community Roots Garden, connected with um, the Abundant Table Farm Project, another farm project that I was a part of as an intern, um, to share food and land with, with one another, with our neighbors this church, instead of building a sanctuary, it always got me, instead of expanding their building and growing outwards, they decided to focus on um, sharing that land with their community and said yes to this very risky experiment of a you know, garden group in their area asking to develop an acre into a community garden. So to me, it's like that the vision of, of sharing land, of saying this isn't just ours to own and build on. We're going to share this with our neighbors and these indigenous farm workers from Oaxaca, Misteco workers in that area. It's a big strawberry growing area. Um, they're a very exploited class and group of people in that in the region. Low pay, you know, awful housing conditions, not a lot of room to grow their own food. But they brought their own seeds from their communities to plant, to teach their children, to share with other neighbors. There were people there who spoke Tagalog and um Oh, um, other dialects and languages. There were people who were um, just from such a diversity, youth in the community who were diverted from the court system through court-mandated community service hours, came out to the garden and eventually caught this kind of vision of um, not just working with the land as punishment or as something that's, um, oh, you know, menial labor, but as something that's really, I think, holy work or sacred work. Um, and that's where I caught my vision of of working as a pastor, really, of sharing land and food and community together. And so I think that for me was a vision of, of mutual flourishing, of um, 
a church taking the decision to give up something that was they thought was theirs and maybe is a bit of a metaphor or a symbol of those who have much or who have resources redistributing that for the sake of community and saying this is the for the good of all like the community in acts the early church that shared what they had in common you know no one experienced hunger or poverty because when they shared when they practices Jesus's uh, way of of enough for all, there was shalom and and wholeness, peace, justice, and of course it wasn't it wasn't um, oh it wasn't something that that from that community garden suddenly changed the landscape of industrial agriculture. But to me, it was a sign of what could be. You know, it was a sign of shalom that's possible now. Um, Cherokee theologian Randy Woodley, who I really um, appreciate his writings, calls Shalom the Harmony Way and recognizes in a lot of indigenous cultures, there are different words that are sort of parallels for Shalom. Um, for me, I, I was really transformed by visiting and staying with, living with during college, uh, an indigenous community in the Philippines for six months, the Ikalahan community. And they have a word, litang, which means Shalom, basically. And it's one word that encompasses right relationship with land, with animals, with the forest, with one another, um, with um, creator, with uh, it's just, you know, it, it's a it's a sort of all encompassing, really rich word that that is so much more than um, than just peace almost falls flat. You know, it's, it's so much bigger. And, um, I think of their community actually as an example of an indigenous community I've, I've seen or lived within that is seeking to practice Shalom and that was able to get government, um, support through a protracted battle in the seventies for their lands to actually be able to have self-determination, which means that they decide, not the not their Filipino government decides what happens on their lands and what lands get sold or or not sold. And they created an ancestral domain so that they could seek the shalom, the flourishing of their place and homelands. Um, and yeah, I saw them um, really protecting the waters and watershed and doing a lot of monitoring. Uh, my host dad was a forest guard that went out and tried to prevent illegal logging from happening. Um, he planted a lot of native trees with a whole team of forest guards. And they were just a really strong interconnected community that even in their high school, they were supporting indigenous languages being taught. So for me, that was just a, a taste of um, shalom when indigenous peoples have self-determination and land rights, that they can seek that vision of shalom in their own place and the church can support that kind of work. Wow, that is so beautiful. There's so much in what you just shared. And thank you for um, giving us that vision of what shalom can look like mm -hmm. and in particularly related to indigenous peoples and their land. And, um, you know, many people might say that the doctrine of discovery is something that's in the past, especially within the American context. And I know you shared a little bit about how there are still ways that that's, mm. that's happening today. Mm -hmm. um, what can we do now to address the harms of colonization and like practically like what does it look like to dismantle the doctrine of discovery hmm. that's such a good question yeah one that I'm still we're still learning in the journey of what this means as we listen and follow the leadership of indigenous peoples as a coalition um, the first part of your question was yeah just talking about what can we do now to address the harms of colonization so as well as how do we address the ongoing um the ongoing impacts of the doctrine of discovery from what I'm hearing you ask. Um, I think one framework that I found helpful and because I've done some adjunct teaching, I find it helpful to um, use like alliteration. <laughs> so I call, call it like the three R's as a way to remember remem uh, remembrance, repentance, and repair. And for me, that kind of frames the kind of work that we're called to as a church and I think there's lots of great frameworks and, and, you know, 
um, nonlinear processes out there um, that invite us into this work. But for me, remembrance means acknowledgement, truth telling. It means um, lament over what has happened, the impacts of colonization on this land. Um, remembrance means in our own regions learning, you know, whose lands do you live on? How are they taken? Often it's by um, either forced removals or treaties that were broken, or um, it could be, you know, even here in the in California, there was state-sponsored genocide that I didn't grow up learning about. So how are those lands taken? How are people um, pushed off of their lands, remembering the truth of what happened and then speaking the truth? There's a big movement right now of... Um, churches or different organizations embracing land acknowledgement statements. And those can be a helpful just starting point to acknowledge the lands that you're on, to learn the names of the territories, to even include in the acknowledgement a commitment towards making amends or towards healing together. Um, and I think rightfully so, there's a critique of land acknowledgements as sometimes like a liberal pat on the back of like, okay, we did something, now we know the lands we're on. But but as a coalition, we really see them as, you know, a helpful orientation and starting point, not an ending point of remembrance. Um, I think remembrance is so important as we, um, as we do the work of history and, and really kind of lifting up the ways that um, that this history is not in the past, but it's still before us. Um, for me, I've come to understand like the, the, the histories of these places are still present in the land and in the memories of the people who've been harmed or impacted. I've been to Standing Rock, for example, where I heard indigenous peoples talk about, you know, the treaty of, um, there was a treaty in the 1860s or 1870s that they talked about it in the we form, like, we made this treaty as if it was yesterday. It's still very much alive. Um, and the history keeps repeating itself because there's been no healing and it'll keep doing so until there is widespread healing. So remembrance was that first sort of part of this cycle. Repentance, I see the work of the church as repenting isn't just an apology or like, a oh, we're sorry that happened. Now we can move forward. It's um, a commitment um, towards action. Um, you know, metanoia is the Greek word for re repentance in the New Testament, which means turning around, going in a different direction. And um, so I see our commitments uh, in the coalition towards um, doing things differently, um, encouraging church communities, supporting church communities to go in a different direction and to seek um, to seek the things that make, make for peace. Um, last night, I heard uh, and hosted a call with our coalition um, from an Indigenous speaker with the Na National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition, which is a coalition of Indigenous communities and groups and their allies who are seeking to respond to the harms of the boarding school era, where church communities collaborated with the federal government in the U.S., like in Canada, um, to assimilate Indigenous children and follow this kind of, um, the phrase that was used by one of the founders was, kill the Indian to save the man. Um, this sort of policy of, of stripping away Indigenous language and culture to civilize Native children, uh, to steal children, you know, kids from their own families in order to make them more white and more Christian. Um, and so those harms continue today. And she just encouraged us not only to listen as a really crucial posture of the church, like listening from a place of humility, um, but also supporting their work. She invited us to support their work towards a truth and healing commission. There's never been a federal or public acknowledgement of the boarding school era and the harms that has had on almost every indigenous person across the country that I've known has some connection to boarding schools through their family or ancestors, um, through people they know who've, who've really been experienced a lot of trauma. So we need a federal truth commission to say what happened to, for the church to be active in repentance because of our complicity in that system um, and to and to not only 
not only tell the truth, but to seek to make amends today, which leads to that kind of repair part of the cycle. What does reparations look like today? And what does the ongoing commitment to, um, to doing things differently, to, pro- you know, to, to going forward in a way, um, in a way that transforms the harm into, um, into something new that we couldn't yet imagine. So there are m- many, many indigenous um, groups out there that um, though it's a long road of trust building and partnership building, our coalitions and partnership with groups who are, for example, protecting their sacred sites like the Apache stronghold from mining companies um, and from land transfers to mining corporations that would destroy their sacred sites. Or there are groups involved in um, land return and land back as a form of repair and reparations, returning key homelands um, to indigenous communities, to indigenous hands um, as, as a way of saying, hey, this, this land was stolen and taken unjustly. We want to commit to releasing, to, to giving up what wasn't ours to own um, back into indigenous um, sovereignty and leadership. So there are many ways of involvement, but um, I offer that framework just as a loose kind of framing of remembrance, repentance, and repair of the sort of work I believe the church is called to today. Finally, I'll just say um, I invite churches to familiarize themselves Um, with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. This is just a very practical next step and tutorial. Um, This has gotten more traction in Canada and in other governments than in the United States. The U.S. was one of the last signatories. They really dragged their feet on signing on to this. It's not legally binding yet, um, but we hope that eventually this could be something with teeth. That, that represents a true commitment on the part of the U.S. government and other Western governments that have inherited the doctrine of discovery and still practice the assumptions of the doctrine of discovery um, to respect indigenous rights. And it's, a, um, it's this framework that was developed over many decades of work by indigenous peoples around the world to respect their cultural um, language, you know, rights to free prior and informed consent about what happens on their lands, um, and really articulates a vision, I think, of shalom that's from indigenous communities. So that's something that I, I just wish that church communities would know more about, and maybe we need more study resources about that for churches to really lift up that framework. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually, um, almost perfectly answers a question that I had, which was how can church communities join the call to repair? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's certainly one way. Is there, is there anything else that comes to mind or that you would want to highlight? And, um, you know, you've done a lot of amazing storytelling through this conversation, but if you have any other examples of communities who's been, who've been moving towards right relationships with indigenous communities, like feel free to share those as well. Oh, absolutely. This is just my passion area. Um, I was the editor uh, about two years ago of a resource through our coalition called Stories of Repair. And that's exactly what it's all about, is actually lifting up and telling stories from across the land, um, across mostly the U.S., but also in Canada, um, of, of stories of church communities and individuals pursuing right relation and what that looks like um, from settler and indigenous perspectives. Um, so I invite folks to check out our website, which is dofdmeno.org. Um, and that's D-O-F-D, meno is in Mennonite, M-E-N-N-O dot O-R-G. And you can find more resources on there. We have a study guide, a film, a Bible study collection. Um, we have, we've sponsored a play called We Own This Now um, about the doctrine of discovery, which is a double entendre of owning up to this work as well as owning the land. Um, and, and I also organize this network that launched um, about a year and a half ago called the Repair Network. And this is really geared towards church communities. We are um, just opening it up actually this year to beyond Mennonite churches, which we started with mostly Mennonite faith communities, 
to do the work of decolonization together. So to form a support network and to share resources, ideas, to cross-pollinate stories of repair with one another. Uh, We commit to seven steps of commitment, which are listed on our website um, from just the learning and lament phase to truth-telling to um, seeking solidarity with indigenous peoples who we're in relationship with to practicing reparation by, for example, putting restitution funds in church budgets, um, to connecting creation care with this work of of repair. And so we really invite any listeners who are interested to check out that network as an opportunity to support your community going forward and to join our coalition, um, to hear from Indigenous partners who we're in solidarity with, um, like some of the ones I named, as well as Maya community in the Yucatan Peninsula, um, Apache peoples in Arizona, Dakota peoples in Minnesota um, on their homelands, Makoche Kichupe. And that, I think, maybe is one example of repair that the church has really um, been a part of in Minnesota is just one example. Just a couple months ago, I heard of um, this beautiful story of land return to Dakota peoples um, that originated um, from a repair community that's in our network in Mountain Lake, Minnesota. They were able to um, help help transfer land, family farmland belonging to this one family um, back to Dakota peoples who were trying to build, rebuild the homelands that they were removed from and that were taken from them. Um, They've been building villages of healing and villages of wellness where they use traditional earth lodge building of Dakota villages and um, are bringing back language since language is so connected with having a place to speak it and the plants and animals and connections to refer to. Uh, They're doing plantings again of native plants. It's a whole kind of ecological community project. Um, but they need land to do it. And these settlers were part of fundraising as well as part of giving back some of the land, fundraising for the sale of a building on this farm, as well as uh, land return efforts there to to restore Dakota homelands in relationship with that community, Makoche Kichupe. Um, there are other communities that are just starting out and, and are pursuing right relations through For example, um, participating in vigils around missing and murdered indigenous women, um, grieving that, you know, there are these just high rates of disappearances among indigenous women. Um, So the intersection of gender justice, racial justice and the land all right there. So they've shown up at vigils or um, other communities are putting restitution, like I mentioned, in their church budgets. Um, when, and, and then going through a process of discernment around how to direct those repair funds towards local indigenous groups who are working for, um, who are working for healing and for, um, their own self-determination and, um, for their communities, you know, ongoing ability to govern themselves and to seek their well-being today. Um, other churches, I was so encouraged. I'll just share this last story. Um, By most recently, there is a Supreme Court case about the Indian Child Welfare Act. The Supreme Court heard about this in September. I was not super familiar with this legislation that that um, really actually affects so many um, indigenous communities and families. It determines um, it, it really gives priority to indigenous communities and families first in child welfare cases, so adoption or foster cases, and allows indigenous children um, to not be assimilated out of their tribe through being placed with white families, for example. And it's largely white Christian families who are active in challenging ICWA, or I believe are being used by conservative legal groups to challenge the Indian Child Welfare Act in saying, well, it's reverse discrimination if we can't adopt indigenous children. We're being discriminated against as white people. And so our repair network was able to mobilize and to send several church communities in the D.C. area to the steps of the Supreme Court where they joined indigenous people in grieving, lamenting, praying, mourning um, the challenge to ICWA and praying for it to be protected. And so um, we've 
we've been doing a lot of educational work around that, like Sunday school classes and doing film screenings of um, the main truth and reconciliation process, which had to do with upholding ICWA and really looking at, you know, what are the ways that our legal system continues to challenge and erode small gains for indigenous rights and for um, threats to indigenous children today that didn't end with boarding schools, but that still continue, not just to indigenous children, but to their communities well-being and uh, their ability to remain on on their lands. Um, so those are just a couple of examples of our repair network in action, building some really um, healing relationships, I hope, for the long term with Indigenous communities, both local as well as national. And we're really committed to following the leadership and organizing our own church communities um, to be humble listeners and followers to support the priorities of indigenous organizations that that know best uh, what it means to dismantle the doctrine of discovery. Wow, that's incredible. Thank you so much for enlightening us about what's happening and different ways that church communities and also even as individuals, we can become involved in um, healing and repair. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I love that example of what does it look like to heal through reparations or giving back what um, was never owned by <laughs> white um, Christian America. So um, could you also explain, and you've talked about this quite a bit already about, you know, gardening and also your faith community, Wild Church, um, but could you explain or perhaps illuminate for us another dimension of the connection or interplay between physical space and reconciliation um, and that connection between nature and healing and restoration. Anything else that you'd like to yeah. Yeah, share about that? Sure. Yeah. I, um, oh, I feel like um, there's so much that's hard to put into words around this. It's like more of a sensation than articulation yet, but I, I, I'm really committed to the intersection of, of um, reconciliation between humans, the earth, and um, the spirit um, of, of God. Um, I, I believe that um, we have inherited this understanding of sort of a, a, a white grandfather, Santa Claus-like God in the sky that's up there, and then, you know, um, earth is down here and there isn't that um, sense or understanding of, um, I think, the Colossians vision of Christ in and through and with all, all things, that Christ holds all things together. So for me, that's really the essence of reconciliation um, is that Christ is our peace, our reconciliation. And literally, I almost imagine that as like, within the atoms and matter and like Christ taking on flesh, if we really took that seriously of incarnation, um, that God it has embraced earthiness and God has embraced matter and physicality and flesh as something that, that God has, has proclaimed, uh, this is good. You know, this I have created and wants to reconcile and, um, and to renew you know, the earth and ourselves in our, um, in our woundedness and our need for healing and what scripture calls decay, um, sin, um, death, you know, longing for, for, um, longing for renewal and not to burn up or send to hell <laughs> this, this physical earth. And so I think for me, that's at the heart of reconciliation is that theology of the cosmic Christ who's with and in and through all things, who's visible and invisible, you know, both, um, both uh, part of and separate from at the same time. And so I really believe that um, as much as we're able to integrate that into our ministries, for me, that became more apparent as I was doing this uh, program that worked within prisons, the Insight, Insight Garden program, when I first moved back to California, I spent four years working in correctional institutions, a women's facility in Chowchilla and a men's prison at Avenal. And 
our whole goal was to build spaces of healing through gardening within prisons. And so it was extremely difficult to bring in, you know, tools and even, um, you know, compost and soil and garden beds and to construct based on the designs of incarcerated people, their visions for a garden within prison. And they really went through this whole year long curriculum of from envisioning a garden to designing it, to building it, and then learning about our interdependence uh, with the earth, with plants and soil and other animals. Um, and I think part of the process was was really restoring their, their sense as people who are so isolated from society. In some ways, prisons are the ultimate kind of form of colonization, you know, of control, of constantly being watched, of isolation, loneliness, death, uh, feeling discarded um, that their lives are worthless and don't matter. And, and coming into the garden spaces that they created and that we built together was just such a, it, they said it was it was like stepping into the outside world, like tasting freedom every time they stepped into that garden space. Um, that experience of shalom, really, where um, they sensed that reconciliation um, with, with the wider world, that they were a part of something bigger and not just trapped in their cells for those couple hours every week that they were allowed out to the garden. Um, so just profound healing when we can connect the, the physical spaces um, with, with humans who all of us, you know, in some way have been disconnected from the earth through either a technological society or through, um, you know, the work that I do is in front of a screen all day, for example. Um, but just through the kind of mechanisms of our industrial civilization has, has created a a rift between humans and the natural world that was so visible in prison. And so to create those spaces of shalom and reconciliation and healing um, was just so powerful. And I think it allowed people to come back into their, what I believe is our God-given vocation of being restorers and being people who give back. Um, like I can't tell you how many people who realized in the process of gardening that they weren't just people who were offenders as society had labeled them or who did harm. Um, but they realized that they had more to offer and wanted to make amends. They wanted to contribute to restoration. Um, and in some ways I see myself in them and, and sort of hope for the church and what they modeled of um, seeking to, to um, seeking to restore harm and wanting to contribute something positive of knowing that they had, caused a lot of death and destruction in their communities um, and, you know, are part of broader systems that they are also victims of at the same time. Um, but really coming into a place of, of embracing that vocation of gardeners, of people who could contribute restoration in relationship with the land. So that's just one example of the kind of spaces that I feel like I've learned from and with that that um, help to reconnect us and reconcile us with the land as part of our community and not just as a subject or not just as an object, but as a subject in that relationship. Yeah, yeah, that's super, super helpful. Um, and I was such a new concept for me. I feel like in seminary, I started hearing mm -hmm. language like reconciliation between us and land. And I never thought of that. Yeah, totally. Same, yeah. you know, same for me. And yet when we read the, especially the Jewish scriptures in the, in the Old Testament and look at how the land is talked about, it's like, wow, the trees are dancing for joy or clapping their hands. The mountains and the hills are alive. You know, Jesus talks about if, if you don't recognize me, the stones will cry out. Like even the stones mm -hmm. are given that voice or the there is a sense of animacy and of um, aliveness of relations that are given to the created world um, that I think we miss because of, I don't know, a lot of reasons, <laughs> modernity, right. the enlightenment, whatever it might be. Um, modern readers kind of miss that sense of, of aliveness that, that, the, that we are called to relationship with the land and to, um, yeah, to, to listening and, and respect for, for what the land is speaking, which in these times of climate change, I feel like, wow, the land is really crying out. There's a lot that that the earth is sharing yeah. with us if we had ears to listen. Right. 
Right. Well, um, this has been such an amazing conversation and we've enjoyed it so much. Um, so I guess just, we want to turn it over to you before we close. Is there anything you'd like to leave our audience? Um, anything you want to highlight? Hmm. Yeah, I really enjoyed, um, this conversation with you both and, in some ways, I just wish I could like interview you <laughs> and hear your stories as well, because I feel like there's a lot of resonance um, with just seeing your faces on the screen and nodding and um, from what you've shared briefly from your own stories. Um, I guess the last thing that I'll add, I'm working on a sermon for this Sunday on Luke 19, which is the story of Zacchaeus. And I guess I just want to offer that as a story that I think we can learn from in church communities in this work of repair, of noticing the ways that Zacchaeus first encountered Jesus in this high place, right? Of like up in a tree, like he was up high. And then Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down. And he actually changed position from that position that we could maybe see as like um, power or privilege, or he was trying to see, you know, the ways that we can't yet see unless we come down. Um, to the perspective of those who are more lowly, who Jesus identifies with, and that Jesus wants to be hosted. You know, we're called to extend that hospitality to Christ among us. Um, and because of his encounter and relationship with Jesus, Zacchaeus commits to reparations and commits to return what he had stolen, fourfold um, even, it says. And so he commits to this way of making amends to the work of repair um, and Jesus then says, today salvation has come to this home. And I just totally miss that, you know, growing up in the church, that there's that connection between salvation and repair, that there's something healing, salvific, there's something um, just really potent there that Zacchaeus is healed in the process as someone who has contributed to harm in his own community and I guess I just offer that as maybe a word or promise for those who are in church communities or from white Christian backgrounds, especially who are, you know, wondering what's our place or what's our role. And, and just to say that I believe this whole road, this long journey of decolonization and reparations and healing is ultimately also for our own healing and liberation and salvation um, in the way of Jesus and that it can be a those, though scary and, and messy oftentimes, um, that it can be a, a freeing and joyful one as well. So just wanted to share that as kind of a um, relation between this work and our faith and our call to follow Jesus as peace builders. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Mm. Yes, that's my favorite reparation story. I also love to bring that up. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's right there. So, yeah. Do you, <laughs> I mean, what would you add to it, Becca? It, what, it, from what you see in that story, like, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm actually using this for my sermon prep now. <laughs> Tell me more. I love that. No, I feel like something about Zacchaeus, like, as someone who was perpetuating or like involved mm -hmm. with oppressing people, like something about being called by name by God too, like mm -hmm. that God does call people to, like you said, lay down, um, to turn from our ways and like to see that repentance that wasn't just him stopping what he was doing, but like you said, giving back and giving back four times what he'd taken. And yeah, I just think it's such an incredible example for those of us who, maybe don't even realize like what we're, we might be a part of that is contributing to the oppression of others mm -hmm. and how can we like, yeah, be um, repentant in that way. So, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. I love that. Like called by name sense. And there's something from my evangelical upbringing. that's like, I still want to be called by name and say, yes, <laughs> you know, like that that Jesus looks at him and loves him like the rich young ruler. And there's that seeing there that, that we have a, a role and a place and are loved and invited in. Um, it's not like a, you're excluded and rejected because you did harm, but it's a, it's a mm -hmm. real seeing an invitation. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Mm. And that that's what led him to repentance was that that kindness I guess like that love and that kindness that mm -hmm. yeah yep 
Yeah, so good. It was just such an honor to hear from Katerina. And I think one thing that would might be interesting to start off our conversation is when she sketched for us a vision of Shalom and um, what it looks like. And that's always an exciting conversation to have with different guests who come to us from uh, different backgrounds and are, you know, working for peace in diverse ways. I loved how she gave the example of community gardens and sharing resources and that kind of being evidence of Shalom when we're willing to give something up for the sake of someone else. Um, and just the, the vision, the image of a garden that is, you know, within the center of a community and, um, it can be accessed by all, um, and more than one person's contributing. Um, just that image I feel like is so powerful. You, yeah, I, I just, I totally see Shalom in that Shalom at work. Um, and just, you know, the emphasis that it is so much bigger than peace uh, and that that word doesn't even come close to describing what shalom looks like and um, just kind of imagining how we as a community can live into that. Totally. I, I yeah, I love how you're phrasing it or how you're framing it too of like the holistic picture of shalom and not just, um, yeah, like shalom is so much deeper and wider and bigger than just what we might think of when we hear the word peace. So thanks for framing that. And um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think there's something really beautiful about like that example. And then also examples of um, like land being returned to the Dakota peoples, the story that she shared um, and like bringing back languages and planting native plants and how that contributes to the repair, but also the restoration of the land. And that that's like, all comes with shalom and what it looks like to, to, um, cultivate that. So really, really inspired by, um, yeah, by everything that she shared and yeah. And like you were saying, kind of giving that definition of what is the doctrine of discovery and why does that matter today? And like understanding that it's not just from the past, like it's still before us, like the histories of these places are still present in the land and in the memories of those who've been impacted by it, it was really um, quite powerful to, to be reminded of. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's so interesting because we, well, I guess it might be dangerous to say we, but I'll, I'll just speak for myself. I, um, it's easy to ignore the history and um, to forget to remember, <laughs> uh, to refuse to look back because we are where we are and we got here somehow. And while I wasn't part of it, so what ownership do I have over that issue or um, over the harms that have been inflicted upon indigenous peoples? Um, and I, I just enjoyed the way that she framed repentance. Um, and what you just said that, you know, it's so the reality that, um, what has happened to indigenous peoples in this country, it, it did happen in the past, but, um, I really appreciated what she said about memory, um, and memories still being held within the people within the land itself, which I, I think is, um, maybe a concept that some of us would struggle with, you know, that like land has memory, that creation is alive. Um, but I think there's something so, um, powerful when you really reflect on what that means, it, at least with me, it resonates. I, I, it makes sense. Um, and I mean, there's even there, there's scripture, you know, talking about the groanings of creation. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I think that, encouragement, um, to look back and recognize that what's in the past is very much in the present. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's humbling and it in, encourages me at least to, to be part of that act of repentance, um, that I have a place in it. I, um, 
right. Yeah. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not our predecessors. It's, it's us as well. Mm-hmm. We have a place. Um, I think that's mm-hmm. yeah, definitely something I drew from the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, the same goes for me because I do think there's something for me, like as a white, like American person who's, yeah, maybe my family like migrated here from Europe, but there's not this like connection to like sacred connection to the physical land is not something that I really have a context for or understand, but to know that Mm. there's, yeah, like I don't feel connected to necessarily like physical places of land, but I feel connected to like, you know, I don't know, (laughs) more material things or like relationships. Right. So I think like, but understanding that, yeah, that connection to the land, that relationship is so crucial and how that's a part of the bigger picture, um, of creation and, um, yeah. And Shalom. And I think like what you're talking, thing about repentance and you know Katerina was sharing that that's a commitment towards action and if it is relevant for us today then like what actions can we take and um turning around going in a different direction and I think that's like of course like at the national level too and like state levels and community levels but even for us as individuals like um you know what does that look like and um yeah. And especially like as followers of Jesus, like as Christians, what does it mean to repent from that past? Because it is still like making its it like impact is very visible today still. And so even though we weren't directly a part of that, like you're saying, like, how can we be a part of the the future? That is what God would want for for creation and for for everyone um, involved. So. Ali, what do you think could be like an individual's like plan of action? Yeah, I think that a step one might take. Well, I yeah, I could see a couple steps for myself, um, at least. So I think education is huge, just knowing what's going on and maybe even before before taking that step, um, just having a a posture a disposition, which I feel like we constantly talk about on the podcast, um, when it comes to the, the practice of peace building, um, the practice of being in reconciliation work, but having a, a posture, um, that is both bold and humble. Um, and so, yeah, being, being ready and willing to learn when, um, when we know that that might, like rub up against things that, you know, tightly held beliefs. Um, when we know that what we discover might be challenging, um, and maybe even not, not just challenging to ourselves, but like information that, um, might be challenging within our communities, you know, like, um, I know at least for myself, I'm not plugged into, uh, communities where this is discussed, you know? Um, and so, mm-hmm. I think there's sometimes a a fear there of like, well, I'm entering into no man's land uh, where I, you know, I'm, I'm relying on other experts to learn. And, um, and so there's, yeah, there's a boldness of just taking the first step to like, what's, what is happening and what, how can I be involved? Um, and then, yeah, of course, advocacy, being willing to share, um, with, you know, with people in our communities. Um, and then when there's an opportunity to show up, yeah, whether it's showing up or, um, simply having conversations, I think, um, that is, is definitely a tangible step we can be taking. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, yeah, that's so good. That's so, so practical. And yeah. And I love how you're framing it as like, what's the first step that like I could take and what does that look like? And it could look different for each of us because yeah, I think this is something that I have very little like, you know, background knowledge on. And so for me, like a first step would be that education piece, like really learning more from, you know, from Katarina's organization, from other organizations who are working on this issue and trying to help, um, indigenous people peoples here in the U S um, 
and across the world too. So yeah, really, really good. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. 